Hey, Anthony, it's that time again. To put Tom Hanks back on the island? Yeah, yeah, wait, no. No, not at all. Then what? It's time to make the podcast. Oh, oh, oh yeah, that thing. Once again, we have reached that time of the week. Time to dive into the movies we love and the movies we wish we could forget. Pitting them against each other to receive praise uh, or hatred. Based on a scale of our choosing. So let's jump into it. This is the Double Feature Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Double Feature Versus. I am Anthony. I'm Brad. Yep, and today we got a uh, we got a throwback one today. Today we're doing we're doing the first film. We're do, we're doing first films by uh, classic directors or you know favorite directors or directors who are favorites to cinephiles. So today we have the Coen Brothers' first film, Blood Simple. Uh, put up against Quentin Tarantino's first film, which is uh, Reservoir Dogs. So uh, before we hop in, Brad, how you doing, man? Doing good. Uh, especially since this is another one of the episodes where we're watching two good movies. <laughs> you waiting wait, wait on me to say something? Yep. <laughs> um... Uh, I don't know, man. One of these films, I got, I got some strong opinions about. But I hear what you're saying. I do think this is a, this is a good one in the books because both of these films um, did kind of lay the groundwork for, uh, for certain elements in their uh, genres. Yeah, they're very cinephile movies. That's for sure. Uh, I can see these ones as passing by like a standard audience and them just going, I didn't care for that. But cinephiles, there's a lot to take in for these movies. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that's I guess that's a true statement. That's a true statement. Um, okay, uh, chronological. Uh, yeah, I think we got to go uh, chronological. Okay, all right, it makes sense. Um, all right, so we're starting off with the uh, Coen Brothers' first film, uh, Blood Simple. So this film um, stars Frances McDormand. Uh, it's their first collaboration with her. So this film has Francis McDormand, uh, Dan Hadia, John Getz, and M. Emmett Walsh. So it follows a um, Texas bartender um, and a woman who are having a uh, a love affair, and um, the uh, the woman's husband, um, who who runs the bar that the bartender works at, you know he um, he gets wind of this love affair, and um, he. He sets himself up with this uh, sleazy, well, I wouldn't even call him sleazy, but he sets himself up with this enigmatic private eye, and uh, he he gives he 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 offers the guy ten thousand dollars to um, kill his wife and uh, and her lover, and from there the plot just gets more and more thick and more and more twisted. And dude, I gotta say, one of the things I love about this movie is that the plot is pretty simple. Even if you talk about what happens from beginning to end, it's a pretty simple plot. But the way it's constructed and twisted is, you know, you could tell the Corn Brothers were in charge of their craft from their first film. 
like yeah. from their very first film. Like the way they crafted this story, it kind of has a burn after reading feel to it, where in the end, it was just a big, it was just a huge misunderstanding. Yeah, every really single person it. in this movie is basically seeing things a completely different way than what is reality and what other people are seeing. Right. You know, That's everybody, right. if you were to interview every single person in this movie, they'd each have a different story of what happened. I, I agree. And I feel like the way that set up is so genius is that it kind of flips the noir, the kind of flips the film noir genre on its head where we, the audience, we know what happened. We, we, we understand what happened here, but the, the characters are no wiser as to what's going on. Was this your first time seeing this? This was the first time watching this one. So okay. it, it, I definitely went in completely blind on this one because I didn't decide to look up any information on it prior to watching. So mm. I'll admit, at the beginning, I was a little confused as to what was going on up until about the... I'd say maybe like 20, 25 minutes in when uh, the detective or the investigative PI gave like the doctored photos and then uh, killed Marty. I think it was, right? Yes. Uh, hold on. Let me, let me confirm who Marty is. So Marty was, yeah, Marty was the husband, yeah. Yeah, okay. So that's where everything, I, I was starting to follow along a little bit better. Uh, prior to that, I was kind of just going, okay, so things are happening. I don't understand any of what's going on right now. And let, let's just hope that pieces start coming together sooner. This might be a terrible episode to be talking about this movie because I'm just going to go, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I think I think a film like this is best to have subtitles on because of the southern drawl of yeah. the characters. You know, and, and I can tell it's intentional because it's kind of like a southern crime film. Um so the first time I watched this film and I finished it, I was like, oh, man, that was pretty interesting. I don't quite get the ending, which I, we'll talk about the very final shot. But um, I'm talking about like the whole ending confrontation. I was like, oh, OK, that was a little weird. But then when I read up on it and I understood and then I understood, yo, this is just a whole big misunderstanding. And then I, I you know, I'm rewatching it today for this episode. I was like, dude, this film, the way this film is constructed is genius because it has a lot of replay value to it. Because if you if you if you follow certain things in this film, like the gun, um, which, you know, when he, when um, the private eye first picks up the gun at the uh, at the bartender's place with the um, um, bar owner's wife, mm-hmm. it has three bullets in it. And those three bullets are shot throughout the film. If you count yeah. them every time the, the gun is shot like that's pretty like that was pretty um, that was cool. From, from a storytelling perspective. And then you got the motif of the four fish that are on the um, the bar owner's desk and how they're rotting as the film goes on. And, like, the four fish represent the four main characters. See, I didn't get that one. Uh, I did. I noticed that the fish were kind of, like, rotting as it kind of progressed. Yeah. Like, when uh, the one guy came back uh, that was having the affair with Marty's wife... Uh, mm-hmm. When he came back and the fish were rotting and it kind of showed that time had passed since everything went on. Uh, but, yeah, yeah I, I got to love that. It, literally, misunderstanding is the entire focus of the movie. Because from the one person's point of view uh, that was having the affair, uh, he literally came back to the bar, found Marty mm-hmm. dead, 
and thought it was uh, his wife that had killed him. So he was like, I'm going to fix this. You know, make I'm going to make this go away. And then he um, goes to her and basically goes, I fixed your mess with uh, Marty. And she's like, "Uh, what mess? What are you talking about? What did you do to Marty? You know. The only thing that kind of like, well, we'll talk about that later, but. All right, so I want to ask your opinion because I love that whole sequence with with um, Ray taking Marty and you know they they go into that um, he's driving the car and then he ends up taking him to the side of the road and, and burying him. Do you feel like he killed Marty or Marty was already far gone? In your um, opinion, do you feel like I feel like he definitely killed Marty because he was you know he wasn't able to run away but he was crawling he was able to still move around he hadn't right and he was bleeding out for a long time like you know that it was basically the next day that he was found in the bar in the office so he was there for a long time if he had brought Mm -hmm. him to a hospital or somewhere he could have survived easily so it was his decision to finish the job even when he realized he was alive he could have brought him to a hospital and stuff but he did technically do the final blow by burying him alive the thing i love about this film is that every character except maurice maurice seems like a pretty solid cool guy every character is pretty much unlikable but yeah even even though they're unlikable you want to see where this all goes the one character that's unlikable but I love because he knows he's a sleaze ball, or he knows he knows that his moral compass is not great. Is um M. Emmett Walsh's character, the private eye. Like I love that his character, he's okay with his immorality. He's okay with his like sleazy slime ball private eyeness. It seems like everybody else is trying to play a role or be different than what they really are. Ray and Abby are they th- I think they think they're in love, but it's really just it's really just lust. I don't think that was love. It, it looked like lust to me. You know, Marty thinks he deserves his wife and he deserves Abby to come back, but he's really a sleaze ball and a, and, and a terrible husband. Everybody is unlikable and trying to be something that they're not. Visser knows who he is. Yeah, like uh, there's one thing that I didn't understand, and maybe it's because I missed context somewhere. But why mm-hmm. was he at the end of the film going to kill um, Ray and Abby? So, and here's another misunderstanding: he came back to the crime scene. His lighter was missing. Remember his lighter that he set on the desk when he first did the deal with um, uh, Marty, where, uh, yeah. where he, he took the pictures from Marty, right? When they were um, first sleeping together, he came like this is way before the deal was made. Like this is okay. like he comes to he comes to Marty and says. Hey, you told me to follow your wife. I got these pictures here of her sleeping with the guy. And, um, you know, Marty kind of throws the money in him like he's nothing. Like, don't ever come back here. This is way before he propositions him to, like, you know, kill kill these people. Mm-hmm. So he um, when he first came, when he came back after the, after the first deal was made to, hey, can you kill can you kill my wife and this guy? I'll give you this much money. When he uh, when he got the money from um, Marty. You know, and he shot him. He left his lighter there by accident. So he came back there for the lighter. And um, he realized that uh, that the lighter was taken, that Marty's body was taken. And remember, he saw Abby come in at one point and she Mm -hmm. was coming in, scoping the whole place. 
So in his mind, he thought Abby and Ray were trying to pull one off on him. Like they took his lighter in order to like, you know, maybe for evidence, maybe try to blackmail him knowing that he did it. Because oh, okay. like this whole film was a misunderstanding. Like he thought the lighter was taken because I forgot how the lighter was taken. I think it was um, either taken by Ray or something must have happened, but it was taken. So he must have thought Ray and Abby were planning to blackmail him knowing what he did. So oh, okay. that's why he wanted to kill them to basically leave no evidence. That you know makes more sense because I remember that scene and everything like that, but I didn't put two and two together for it. I just remember him all of a sudden coming out of nowhere and trying to kill them. I was like, "Hold on, he? Why is he trying to kill them now?" Like, but yeah, that makes sense now. Yeah, because remember he says to Ray before you know he kind of like beats him with the thing, saying, "I don't know what y'all trying to pull," and you know he beats him. Mm-hmm. Um, dude, I gotta say his like I mean everybody's performance is really really a one in this you know um i love before i get into emmett emmett welsh's performance i want to talk about do you think this one scene was kind of improv you know the one scene where ray and marty are first like squaring off and i love how it's set up where behind ray there's the incinerator there's a fire going Mm -hmm. which is kind of like a theme of like you know bubbling tension and i love how at one point marty is like uh trying to make it fun of him like oh you're laughing you're laughing, but she's going to end up leaving you, and she came back here for me. And then at one point, the light next to him just kind of, like, pops out or something like that. Do you think that was improv, or do you think that was on purpose? Um, I feel like a part of that was improv. Like, I'm willing to bet that uh, they had the conversation in there and stuff, but they just kept going with it even further than what was in the script. Mm, okay. No, no, but the scene stops there. Like, like he just sits there angry, and then the light next to him kind of, like, malfunctions, and then the scene ends with Ray walking away. Oh, I'm willing to bet that they were just kind of still filming the scene before cutting. I'm willing to bet that one of the directors even cut, called cut, and then the light exploded right next to him. They are like, no, we're leaving that in. <laughs> okay, all right, fair enough. Yeah, because that's what I thought, because I said, like, that's such a perfect moment for a light to go out in, in that burst of anger. But, dude, I want to talk about um, – I really feel like the, the private eye Visser, his character, man, like I loved M.M.'s Welsh performance of him, dude. Like the southern draw, like he he seems like a person you don't want to cross. Um, you rather want to be on the good side of, but you don't want to be associated with at all. Mm-hmm. Because even with his opening monologue when the film starts, you know, he goes like uh, – he says, you know, in Russia – Everybody works for everybody. Uh, uh, works for everybody else. Everybody helps each other. Out here in Texas, you're on your own. You know, he seems like a guy that's like really out for himself and a bigger sleazeball than Marty's character. Marty is oh, just yeah. an a hole. Uh, well, even when he like he doctors the photos of like uh, having killed the two having the affair to give to Marty, it's just mm. like okay. There and then he kills Marty right then and there. It's just, it, yeah, he's he's a terrible person, but he kind of owns up to being a terrible person. Yeah, I love. I feel like his character, even though Anton Chigurh from No Country for Old Men is a is a creation of Cormac McCarthy who wrote the book. I feel like his character kind of gave birth to the Coens knowing how to direct a character like that. Like the villain from No Country for Old Men, I feel like this character was kind of like a prelude to his character, 
both characters knowing that they are evil. Yeah, I could see that. Up, you know, I, I there's so many Cohen-esque moments in this film that you can see as the birth to or as the prelude to future films in their um, collection. Like you can connect this film to Fargo in, in that. You know, Fargo was kind of a misunderstanding in some ways. Or Fargo had a lot of absurdity that was going on, you know, with violence and down south crime. And, well, that was actually Midwestern crime. But, you know, it's kind of like the Coen brothers know how to look. They know how to give an absurd view into America's dark underbelly of crime. Yeah, you can definitely see like the precursor to a lot of their style that would come in their later movies here. Like they were finding like what they were looking for as directors in this movie and Mm -hmm. they like kind of perfected it because it's not all perfect here. There's still some issues, obviously, and you can kind of get little tidbits of their style in it. But it's not like the full Coen brother experience that you get in movies like Fargo. You know, you can see that this was like feel? a precursor. So what what do you feel are the issues? What 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 were the issues to you? It, some of the issues to me were just the dialogue kind of just drains in some scenes. Uh for example, okay. when they're uh when Marty is talking with uh the PI. You know, some mm-hmm. of those scenes just kind of drag a little bit. And <laughs> it, it doesn't help that you know, every, you know, fifth or sixth word from the PI, I had no idea what the hell he was saying. So that that was probably a part of it as well. But I know that was a style choice with the accent and everything. Yeah, I feel like I feel like that was a style and a style worked like. So I can't like, fault um, it for that, but it's some of those conversations just dragged on. Uh, same with conversations between uh, the two people having the affair. It, it, they just dragged on for me sometimes yeah those, those were kind of like but i looked at those as just straight up like you know down south love and you know kind of like like it it, it added to the facade of their relationship you know what yeah. i mean like I, I i excuse those scenes i feel like this scene is very much 80s horror inspired um and this this is an 80s film this came out in like 1984 i think didn't it yeah that sounds uh, right yeah, 1984. Like this, you can tell this film kind of has some horror elements to it with the um, Carter Burnell's. What is his name? Carter Burwell. Like Carter Burwell's score, you know, it has a little bit of 80s um, Carpenter kind of John Carpenter kind of synth to it in some ways, in some scenes, and I like that. You know, I feel like that's pretty cool. Um, you could tell they were mixing Pulp Fiction, like not the movie Pulp Fiction, but like Pulp Fiction comics from back in the day. Yeah. With, you know, film noir and it uh, it all works in here. Like, I don't feel like this film has that many flaws. It, it really um, doesn't. I mean, it's I would say that just the dialogue drags are my biggest flaw. Uh, aside from like the first 20 minutes, they just kind of throw a lot at you and it's kind of hard to or at least for me. First time watching it, it was hard for me to kind of keep straight everything that was going on. I feel like that adds to his replay value, though, to like we want and understand what's going on. Like the first time I watched it, I was like you. I was like, yeah, so what? what's happening? And then I watched it a second time and I was like, oh, I get it now. Yeah, I, I can see that. But having only watched it one time, I, I still have that view of you're it. Feel, you're still fresh. I got yeah. you. I got you. So I, I got to um, say, those are probably the two like 
biggest drawbacks I can think of for this movie. Uh, the rest of it was really good. The acting, as we've mentioned, was really good. I love the idea of like every person in this movie could tell you a different story of what's going on uh, mm. from the characters' perspectives and everything like that. And, you know, it literally everything's just a misunderstanding from every possible angle. And the fact that we as the audience are in on everything that's actually happening, we get to see everybody misinterpret everything that's going on. Like, uh, when Maurice comes to uh, the one guy and goes, you know, you took all the money from the safe. You better be, right. you know, on your way out before Marty gets back. And he just starts laughing. And, you know, it, from Maurice's standpoint, he's like, oh, he's laughing because, you know, he's thinks that he's going to get away with this. When in reality, he's laughing well, he because he knows. he wasn't laughing. He was just dumbstruck. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. But, uh... Well, it, um... I Go ahead. It, he looked a little smug and stuff like that, you know, to the whole ordeal. And you can yeah. tell from his perspective, one, he knows that he didn't take any money, and two, he knows that uh, Marty's not coming back. <laughs> yeah, he, he did. He did have the he did have the look of a cuckold. He he, he was very smug in some scenes. Like John yeah. gets look, looked a little douchey in some scenes. Like, yeah, I don't blame Marty not liking you, dude. You're kind of, like, basking in... Well, like I said, these are unlikable characters. Right. Like, you know... I will um, say, it did take me a little bit to realize why he was saying, like, the money was gone. Because I was like, I didn't remember him taking any money and then realizing, oh, it's the money that Marty had paid to the P.I. That's what he's talking about is missing from the safe. Right, right. Um, and plus they had been trying to open the safe, right? Who, who had been trying to knock open the safe? Was it the, was um, it the PI? Was it the wife? Was I think it that was the wife. Like, Cause she yeah, was the was, one that was like trying to knock open the safe. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, um, dude, let's talk about the climax, man. So one of the things I love about the climax is where all the misunderstandings come to a head. You know, she comes home. But, you know, sees um, Abby comes home and sees Ray and, you know, she's terrified of Ray not knowing what he did. And oh, yeah, then, because she thinks that he did something to Marty. Right. And then the whole and then all she sees is, you know, like, you know, Ray getting shot. We know Visser shot him, you know, from from the from the from the place across the way from the window mm. across the, the, the street. And so in her mind, if you really think like this ending is so genius, she never sees Visser once. Like this whole time, she's thinking it's Marty coming back from the dead to uh to kill. Well, not both even of them. coming back from the dead. She just thinks that Marty's coming back to get revenge on whatever Ray had done to him. Because from well, her point of view, uh, yeah. Marty just disappeared, and Ray's like, "I cleaned up the mess." And well, they, they, well, he says buried alive too. He said buried him. So oh, did he? Okay. He said the words buried, so that's why I said come back from the dead because you know. He says, like, um, you know, if you shoot a man, you need to make sure he's dead, you know, and, and you know, and she's like, what are you talking about? He says, well, I buried him. He's OK. It's OK now. Um, and one scene, he says it. So okay. so she's literally thinking this is a, a um, kind of like a, a demon raised up from the dead coming to get her. And I, I love the way they stage this this scene because she never sees Visser, but Visser kind of is following her and knowing where she is. And I love how I love that shot of him like shooting through the wall and you just see gunshots popping out. It's almost like a horror oh, film. Oh, yeah. Dude. Yeah. If you look at it from her perspective, it's almost like a horror film. He's trying to punch down the walls and all that to get his get the knife off his hand. 
And it comes down to the final scene where she shoots him and says, I'm not scared of you, Marty. And then he just starts laughing like, all right, if I'll see if I see him, I'll let you know. And um, or no, I'll just, let him know if uh, when I see him. Right, right. And dude, what do you think about that? That that little drop of water that was coming down from the sink. Um, I it's don't... like the final. It's the final shot where um he's sitting down, like you know, kind of like um on the bathroom floor after he says what he says. Like I'll be sure to give him the message, and then we just see his face looking worried as this drop of water is about to come down from the sink that that's that's above him. Oh, I think that was just kind of doing like a uh sudden kind of uh like I'm, I'm trying to think of the word for it but uh it, trying to grab tension out of the just very last moment yeah like, kinda where it's just kind of going to that shot where you see something that is normally not too unsettling but given mm-hmm. the area that it's in it becomes unsettling on itself which it's literally just the faucet leaking it, it becomes yeah. this unsettling sound around everything that's happening with it. Yeah, that's how I looked. I, yeah, I looked at it as like like this movie is just tense down to the. It's just it's just so much tension down to the very last moment. And um, yeah, man, I uh, I feel like this film like like you say the dialogue between the PI and uh, Marty is a little. Um, it's a little Dragging. bit longer than it needs to be. I would argue, like, sometimes the pauses in their dialogue kind of leads to moments of, like, you know, like, a little bit of um, comedy. Like, like this is early, like, deadpan Cohen's, Cohen Brothers comedy, too. Like, th- at one point when um, Marty Thompson says to him, like, yo, I'm going to pay you 10000 to do this, you know, they're in this car. They're in this small little car with, mm-hmm. uh, with all these hippie kids around and, you know what I'm saying? And, um, you know, at one point, Vista says, in Russia, they get paid 10 cents an hour. And he just pauses looking off. And, you know, you know, Marty is just kind of looking like, what's wrong with this guy? Like, does he is he going to do the job or not? Like, I just think yeah. that part, that not, that scene of silence was hilarious to me. See, it, it does. But I feel like it was supposed to come off as more intimidating than funny. I think maybe more enigmatic than funny. I don't think I don't think he I don't think he's intimidating to Marty at that point. He's really just a weirdo to him at that point. Right, but really what he's saying like he's nothing. saying something to try and seem intimidating. It's just not working. So it's supposed to be this weird like game of cat and mouse where neither of them are the cat or the mouse kind of thing. Right. Yeah, and plus he's coming off uh, smarter than he seems because he's like, I don't want you going doing something simple like telling on me and stuff like that. Like, you know. Oh yeah, he's definitely trying to come off as some kind of genius when you know he's he, he's just some guy that's a jerk. I mean, he is cunning though. He was a cunning villain. I'll give him that. He was smarter than he looked. If he was really that smart though, he wouldn't have made the mistakes that he made. <laughs> Well, everyone makes mistakes in this movie. That's kind of like the well, the yeah, thing. that's a focus of it. Yeah, um, yeah. I would say, look, man. I would say you're you're one to two wee watches of calling this film a masterpiece. Okay. You're you're one to two wee watches away from it, but uh, straight off the dome, I say four five, four point five out of five for me. 
this one's a four out of five for me. It, it's an enjoyable movie. It's it's got the tension and the story that I love. Uh, just those couple of drawbacks hold it back from me. But uh, yeah, I'm sure if I watch this movie again a couple times, I, I would absolutely love it because I already think it's a great movie. Yeah. Yeah, I say give it. I, I'm about one to two week watches of Green Knight before calling it a masterpiece. Okay, that's that's how I feel about that movie. But I I'm probably say, like oh, one to two rewatches before I decide if I love that movie or I think it's the worst movie I've ever seen. <laughs> it, it, oh, it's gonna oh, fall in one of those two categories. Far from the worst, I love the Green Knight. <laughs> I thought we had a conversation. Where we said we liked the movie. Oh, I like the movie, but if the ending is what you think it is, that's a terrible movie. <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you, I'm the only per- Listen, you're the only guy. Listen, okay, okay, I- I'll-, I'll-, I'll concede a little bit. There's room for interpretation that maybe he wasn't killed, but there's little, little small room <laughs> for that. You-, you get what I mean? There's small, little, there's a, there's a little small room for that. Um... But, you know, you know, that's why the director left it up to our interpretation. But a uh, fun fact about this, Barry Sonnefield was the cinematographer of this film. He's um, the director of Get Shorty, Men in Black, one and two, I think. I don't know if he did three, but uh, yeah. I didn't know that. I do know that this one, when they originally wanted to make it, uh, they made a trailer for it, which was that scene of him like dragging the shovel to Marty's body, and that's what they used mm. to try and like pitch this meeting or pitch this movie. Because I think they did crowdfunding, didn't they, the Coen Brothers? Because this was an independent film. Uh, um, I don't remember how they got the funding because I I just remember them talking about it before where you know their start was literally they wanted to make a movie and they filmed one scene and kind of kept showing that off to people to try and get money to make it. Yep, they they shot that fake trailer and Bruce Campbell was in that trailer actually from Evil Dead. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, and they um. They wanted to convince investors to help fund a full-length feature film. So this was basically crowdfunding before crowdfunding now existed. So that's what they did. They, they, they shot a dummy theatrical trailer in order to raise money from investors. It's pretty smart. That's a shrewd yeah. thing to do. Kind of like back in the old days where to share videos, it was just VHS tapes would just fly around house to house. <laughs> yeah, man. Like, can you imagine living in those days and seeing this on VHS? Oh, yeah. Like, can you... Like, I imagine, okay, you've seen There Will Be Blood, right? Oh, yeah. Of course you have. I feel like that's a film that, you you ever feel like some films are, like, not from their era? Like, that film came out in, I want to say, the 2010s or the late 2000s. <laughs> Somewhere around there. But what I'm saying is, There Will Be Blood, like, that's such a... That's such a movie that kind of belongs to like an era of the 80s or the 90s where if you saw There Will Be Blood on VHS, you're like, wow, man, you would immediately hit rewind and start watching it again. Oh, yeah. And then you would have passed it to somebody else. And then yeah. like, maybe a week later, you'd be like, hey, man, do you still have that VHS? And he'd be like, no, I gave that to John. He he has it. And you call up John. And he's like, no, I gave that to Bill. And you're just like, OK, where the hell is my VHS? <laughs> It was such a shared experience, dude. Oh with yeah, VHS tapes. Like you would, you would let a, a friend borrow it. 
frame or let somebody else borrow it. You don't know if you're ever going to get it again unless you're very adamant about getting it back. But mm. it was just a, just a shared experience back then. I can't imagine watching this on VHS. Oh, yeah. That, that would have this would have definitely been a good one because it did come out during the era of VHS, if I recall correctly. Or no, this came uh, out pre-VHS. Yeah, where VHS is out in the 80s, I, I wasn't born there. I, I don't know. I want to uh, say VHS was more like late 80s, 90s. early 90s. Okay. It, it might well, have been on, uh, what was the, like, Laserdisc maybe? No, Laserdisc laser. was after. Yeah. Yeah, I'm laser not sure disc, what format it would have been on. What do you play a Laserdisc on, though? Um, it, It's like kind of... It's like a CD player where mm-hmm. it was like the slot loading CD player that you would just put the giant like vinyl disc into and it would okay. read it that way. Okay. Any any difference in quality? Like what what's you know? Uh I wanna say Laserdisc is actually better quality than VHS. If I recall oh. correctly. I might be wrong on that. I'm trying to remember like those old formats and like the timelines for when they came out and everything. But is Laserdisc better than Blu-ray? Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> okay, all right, all right, sounds good. Um, whereas, you know, vinyl is probably like the top top quality of, of audio. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it doesn't go that way with Laserdisc. No, um, okay. and I'm so glad that Blu-ray won the HD war between HD DVD and Blu-ray. I never, bought, it- I never bought any of those things, those HD DVD ones. Well, it's good because none of them would work anymore. Right. Yeah, because, no, I mean, like, even if you had a player and everything, the actual discs uh, don't actually work anymore due to uh, degradation of the actual uh, media that was used to make the disc. Degradation, you mean like it it gets bad over time? Uh, Like the actual disc will stop being readable because of the material it was made with. Oh, wow. That's horrible. So, like, right now, I can go into my collection of PS3 games, and I can pull, like, a copy of, you know, like, Resistance, one of the games that came out at launch for the PS3 back in mm. 2006. And that game will still work flawlessly, no issues. Assuming yeah, I did, DVDs, you know, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, yeah, with HD DVD, apparently it was not made to last that long. Uh, there was issues with it that uh, people didn't see ahead of time, and... It was, like, starting to come in, like, about 10 years after HD DVDs were kind of dead. People were like, yeah, my uh, copy of Kong doesn't work anymore, starring Jack Black. <laughs> man, that's horrible. Um, all right, man. You ready to move on? I definitely am. Okay. All right. So next on the list, we got Tarantino's uh, feature length directorial debut, Reservoir Dogs. Uh, And I'll let you uh, I'll let you take the mantle on this one, man. So this one is about a group of uh, people that have been brought together to I think it's robbing a warehouse of diamonds, if I recall correctly, was their original goal. Robbing a jewelry store. Robbing a jewelry store. That's it. It was uh, they were getting a delivery of specially cut diamonds, which is normally what they don't handle. 
So mm-hmm. they didn't have the security and infrastructure in order to stop a robbery of, you know, from coming in. So it's a group of six people that have come together, each of them being named after a color in order to keep their identity secret from each other. So the only person that actually knew who any of these people were was the guy putting it all together. Uh, aside from that, everybody was named like Mr. Brown, Mr. Pink, Mr. Blue, Mr. White. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember what the other ones were, but uh, uh, Mr. Orange, Mr. Mr. Blonde. Orange, and Mr. Uh, Blonde. Yep. So uh, nice guy Eddie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice guy Eddie is played by Chris Pan. Rest in peace. Um, yeah. But yeah, so these people go to you know get these diamonds and everything kind of just goes wrong when i believe it's mr blonde that starts just shooting people because they push the alarm yeah yeah okay um, uh, yeah so yeah so basically that's where things go wrong um this kind of again just like with the coen brothers first film this film it shows a lot of what tarantino like perfects during his film uh for the rest of his filmography non-linear storytelling yeah this one is very non-linear uh to the point that some of the scenes i was even a little bit confused like in pulp fiction you can kind of follow along with it being non-linear as to when these scenes are taking place based on Mm -hmm. who's in the scenes who's still alive and everything like that because we watch deaths we watch characters disappear we watch that kind of stuff so we know it's controlled disassociation. Yeah, it's controlled chaos in a way. Yeah, controlled chaos. Uh, this one, it doesn't do as well of a job of it. Like, again, you see, like, the beginnings of uh, Tarantino kind of getting this style. It still has a couple mm-hmm. issues with it because it's hard to follow. Like, when the one guy who is Mr. Blonde comes out of prison and they're, like, trying to get him a job, uh, I-, I wasn't following along with where in the timeline this was as easily as I would have if, you know, it had characters that were actually already input into the story because everybody else is new aside from him in those scenes. It it takes some concentration. It takes some concentration. That's why I feel like even though this was by accident that we put these two together, I would say this and Blood Simple, both both service films, like for its its storytelling, do, you know, um, desire rewatches to follow along with its story. Um, you know, it does take some concentration and yeah, some of it is a little awkward, but I feel like, you know, it it takes a little concentration to understand what happened when and where. Right. And I I just love the the focus of this movie and what makes it great is the dialogue and the interactions between characters. So the actual Mm -hmm. plot is very simple. It's, you know, they go to perform this rot or the team is put together they are introduced to each other. They go and have like breakfast and then they go perform this, you know, uh, heist. It doesn't go well. And then they all convene at this warehouse until everything kind of goes. And what keeps the movie interesting is because it's all kind of cut up and you see things happening in different times. So right. instead of it being a single float story, I think that if this was a single float story, it would have been a little bit boring at parts because there are entire parts where nothing is happening, but it, yeah. those are kind of interjected in scenes where a lot is happening. 
It's like if you chose to watch Christopher Nolan's Memento forward. Still yeah. would be an interesting movie, but it wouldn't have been as interesting without its non-linearness. Oh, that movie goes backwards, actually. But th- this film is... I, I don't want to watch Pulp Fiction chronologically. I don't want to do that. Right. I would rather watch it the way it's intended. Th- there's a lot more mystery when you're watching it non-linear than when you're watching it linear. Put the pieces together and all of that. Yeah. I um, Yeah, there's a lot of things that uh, hint at um, Tarantino's uh, future... Um, you know, future techniques in the film game, you know, not like you just said, storytelling, the uh, the dialogue, pop, the pop culture references, you know, the first scene, I think they're like debating about Madonna's like a virgin. Yeah, that, I love how they're doing the whole. No, see, it's not about a dude with a big dick showing up. It's about, you know, and they just go into this. <laughs> and then at the other side of the table, they have somebody going, Tommy, who's Tommy? I don't remember a Tommy. Timmy, who's t- I don't remember it. He's like going through an old like address book that he like pulled out of his pocket from like a jacket he hasn't worn in years. Right. And <laughs> it it it's the dialogue between everybody, kind of just having these different uh, kind of conversations. Uh, even like Mister Pink's rant on who played by Steve Buscemi. Yeah, yeah, played by in this movie. Oh. It, I gotta say, it's one of his my favorite uh, Steve Buscemi performances. It's him going through and talking about how he doesn't like to tip. Yeah, you know, right, right. W- whenever I think of a Steve Buscemi performance, it's him going, "Nah, I don't tip. I, I'm not gonna, you know, it. I don't like where it's expected that you tip." I I gotta say, um, outside of, when I think of Buscemi, I think of Donnie from The Big Lebowski. Okay, Shut yeah. Shut the fuck up, Donnie. You are the element, Donnie. That's what I think about when I think of Buscemi. Um, See, I think more of Goodman when I think of that scene than I do of actually Steve Buscemi. When I think Steve Buscemi, I think of I don't tip. Nice. Um, so basically, uh, at the center of this plot, too, we have Harvey Keitel's character and uh, Tim Roth's character. And they're basically there... Their budding friendship, which, as we learn as the movie goes on, is kind of based. Well, it's not a lie. There is a kinship there, but you know, it leads to a little bit of a reveal betrayal in the end. But anyway, Mr. Orange, played by Tim Roth, as the film progresses, we learn that he's an undercover cop that's, um, you know, basically trying to take these guys down. Well, trying to take these guys in the in the lead, Joe Cabot, Cabot played by Lawrence Tierney, down. Uh, Mr. White, played by Harvey Keitel. You know, um, he's in the after we cut the credit, the beginning credits, um, we see him, you know, in the car trying to rush uh, Mr. Orange to safety because Mr. Orange is shot. You know, he's in the back crying like, dude, do you feel like that scene is I don't know if that scene is overdone to me or if it's done just right. Like, I love Tim Roth, but I feel all the ah, Donnie, ah, I'm, I'm dying. Ah. Yeah, I'm shot. I'm like, dude, that's too much. Like, it, it's what a do you feel? mix of overacting and purposely encompassing how this person, it, it, their entire character is overacting. Uh, but that's that person at the same time. They take everything to an extreme level. Uh, like they even do the same when he's like going into the bathroom and he's like explaining. And then there were these cops there, and they were, oh, and then they were, you know gonna get you well no they were just talking with each other they weren't waiting for me but their dog just kept 
barking at me and barking. So they knew that you well, were up to something. Well, no, they just told the dog to shut up and they continued conversing. You know, like he always kind of pushes everything to an extreme whenever he's I talking. Guess I, never, I guess I never looked at it like that. I always looked at that as kind of like a Tarantino thing. Like he's 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 over explaining the story because that's how Tarantino builds tension. That's how Tarantino builds a story himself. Right, but he's um, the only character that pushes the story in that kind of way. Out of all the characters that tell stories and stuff, he's the only one that kind of over pushes it. Like even when he's talking with the cop and everything going, do you remember who I am? Yeah, I know who you are. Yeah, because I don't remember you at all. You know, like he continually just pushes everything to 11. And that seems to be that character. Not so much Tim Roth's performance, but what he was doing as that character. Because another part of it was also he was trying to make uh, the other person feel bad so he can get more information from him at the same time. Because that was his goal, was to find out the names of all these people. I mean, okay. So by I acting like, oh, I'm dying, it. man. I can't trust you. I don't even know your name. Like, I, My name's this. And it's like, okay, he's gathering information here. Yeah, but how can you... I, I don't know, man. Because how can you plan a... You're, you're literally dying. He's dying the whole film. Like, he's bleeding out dying the whole movie. Um, so much so, kind of unrealistically enough, he he wakes up in time just to shoot Michael Madsen, <laughs> which, is such a, which is such a stupid scene. Like, I love that scene, but it's so stupid. But um, I don't know, man. I, I guess. So, basically, he's rushing him to safety at this little, like, warehouse, uh, basically hideout spot they have. Um, Steve Buscemi's Mr. Pink shows up and dude say what you want about Mr. Pink but he was really the only professional at the table oh yeah he was the only professional one which he's also the only person that doesn't take like respect for others at all <laughs> into account yeah yeah I, I yeah and that's professional like you it's know, it's professional, um, but yeah, he does not take any personal with anybody at all. Uh, I love when they're going. Well, we could drop him off at the hospital. I mean, he doesn't know anything about us. Well, he knows my name. Well, then screw him. He's dead, man. Then it doesn't matter. <laughs> right, right. He's a professional. He's a professional, yeah. and I love Mr. Blonde. How psychopath? How how such a cool, calm psychopath he is. Like you can tell he. Like I like I told you, um, M. Emmett Walsh's character in Blood Simple was the birth for Anton Chigurh in No Country. I feel like he was kind of like the birth of John Travolta's character in Pulp Fiction. I like they're just they're just cool, calm, murderous people, and they're brothers. They're brothers in real life. Those two characters. Yeah, I I can I can see that. And um, I love how dude. I used to like quote this. I used to like quote this scene with my dad all the time. He's like. Are you gonna bark all day, little doggy? Or are you gonna bite? Oh yeah, I like, love that. Like his dude, his performance in this film is so great, man. Like he he makes looking like a psychopath look cool. You know, like I I, I could say I could see how Tarantino kind of establishes his cool his gangster character coolness with this film. You know what I mean? Well, it also does that because uh, he's committing like atrocious acts while like singing and dancing to. Um What's the Stuck song? Stuck in the middle with you. Stuck in the, Stuck middle, in the middle with middle. you, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it, it's that classic terrible things to a happy-go-lucky song. Um right. That, it, I, I love scenes that do that. Like the bar scene in Shaun of the Dead when, you know, it's 
doing it to Queen as they're, you know, killing one of the zombies. Mm-mm. Yeah, I, yeah, I know. I know what scene you're talking about. Uh, Don't Stop um, Me Now by Queen playing while they're whacking one of the zombies with, like, pool cues and stuff like that. It, like, those, like, terrible things that are going on around a happy song. I love those kind of scenes in movies. And this is one of the pinnacle ones that really pushes that to an extreme. Um... Yeah, you know, uh, all this taken into account, this all culminate, um, this all culminates into uh, you know the final scene where we have the uh, the showdown between all men. You know, Mister uh, Mister White, not knowing that Mister Orange is an undercover cop, uh, Joe, who already suspects it. You know, he has the gun on Joe. You know, Joe has the gun on um, Tim Roth's character, and I believe Nice Guy Eddie has the gun on Harvey Keitel. Um, and, you know, like, uh, you, you shoot him, you die next. Mm-hmm. You shoot him, you die next. Like, I love Kaitel, dude. I love his whole Kaitelness. But, um, yeah, you know, then the shootout happens. Everyone drops down. Kaitel climbs up next to Mr. Orange. And, um, you know, the police show up. Mr. Orange confesses. And then, again, you got another overacting scene a little bit where Mr. White is kind of like crying and, you know, he's holding Mr. Orange and then he shoots him and they shoot him. And I'm like, okay, I don't know. Maybe I'm being pessimistic about this movie because, you know, there's only so much verbal abuse a black man can take watching Tarantino films. Yeah, they are definitely Tarantino is uh, very racist in his (laughs) movies that's for sure it's just it's just the n-word just kept flying and when i first saw this as a teen i kind of let it go i was like okay whatever that's the characters and listen listen i always separate the art from the artist you know what i mean like i Mm. understand like if the character is ignorant or racist that's the character you know i feel like with Django and hateful eight it was that era so i let it go because i'm like okay it's that era um, in a film like this, and, and because it's the start of his career, I don't hold it against him too much, even though I hold it against him. It was like, there was no reason. It, it was, was no very blatantly, like all the time, like it, throwing it in there once or twice, it would have kind of given you an idea of like, these are not very good people. Uh, but right. it was like almost every scene it was somewhere in there. You know, and yeah, yeah. And I just feel like at some point it's just being edgy just to be edgy. And I'm like, dude, like what's what's the purpose? I don't want to go off on a whole, you know, Tarantino N word bashing rant here, but I'm like, it's really hard for me to enjoy this movie because of that subjective reason. Yeah, um, I can see that. Cause yeah, that this definitely is the start of a lot of Tarantino isms, including that. And you know, when you think about it, you, you only hear it in a few films of his, not every single movie. I never heard it once in kill bill one or two, which as you know, is my favorite movie combined. Oh yeah. Um, you know, Jackie Brown, which has black characters, you hear it in there, but you hear it from the black characters. And I think it, I think you hear it once in death proof, but like, well, all I'm trying to say is in here, it felt like, you were being it felt like it was being edgy just to be edgy and it just came off as kind of ignorant yeah like during that time it was already considered you know taboo to throw that in a movie he was throwing in every scene possible uh almost to kind of get some kind of reaction from people 
yeah, yeah. It's the shock. It's to, it's to, yeah. Yeah. I, I get it. Um, it's just, yeah. But taking all that out, out of consideration, um, how do you feel about that ending? Do you feel like the whole crying thing is over the top, or do you feel like it's the right kind of intensity for that I, scene? I will say or? it felt a little bit over the top. Um, it, it definitely feels like it would work for this, but it did go a little bit too far with it. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. you got to keep in mind that uh, Mr. White wasn't in the room when he heard that he was like an undercover cop and everything like that and everything. And he right. did believe and, that there was good in this person. Like he was literally trying to save his life the entire time. He wanted to believe that everybody was wrong about him because he literally risked everything to try and save him. Yeah. Yeah. He, he yeah, he did risk his life and he really uh, he really did look out for him. So I can understand the betrayal. I think yeah. So to find okay. out that he was wrong about him, it would hurt him and everything like that. I, I feel like it was the right place and everything for it. Mm-hmm. it they just kind of went a little bit too far with it. You know, it, it should have been at about a seven, and they had it at about you know a nine, maybe just teetering on a ten for how much emotion they were putting into that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I can I can see that too. Um, yeah, I feel like overall as a debut, it's it's a good debut, and it shows the talent that Tarantino has. You know, with his oh, yeah. storytelling, with you know how he how he moves the camera, how he you know writes dialogue. His talent is there, and it does feel like the start of like a, um, an emerging talent. Um, yeah, this one has the same problem of most Tarantino movies for me, which is, can you describe the plot of this movie? No. Can you describe like almost every conversation that happens in this movie? Absolutely. <laughs> Why can't you describe the plot? Because the plots are always so simplistic that it's like, okay, what happened in this movie? Uh, they they failed to rob a store or something and they got shot. I, I don't fully remember. But man, do you remember that scene when they were in the diner and Mr. Pink was talking about how he didn't want to, you know, do this while Tarantino's talking about how uh, Madonna's like a virgin, you know, song is brilliant and stuff. And then, it, so like the conversations in Tarantino movies, I always remember those. But then when it's mm. like, can you describe the plot? vaguely <laughs> you know like if you told me describe the plot of pulp fiction uh it's about an investigator that uh you know gets caught up in a thing that happens and he doesn't want to be there i guess i don't know but man that a whole bo- conversation about the big mac though that was hilarious a boxer two gangsters and what was the third story? It was it was it was two gangsters, a boxer, and a um a um the two a, a, uh, a drug kingpin. Okay, a drug kingpin's wife, a boxer, and two gangsters get caught up in um in a twisty story of like murder and mayhem and cool mayhem in L.A. Yeah, boom. You know, um, but I hear what you're saying. It, it is kind of hard to like, like um, it's hard to like pinpoint the exact plot of a Tarantino movie, but they're always so quotable at the same time. Yeah. Um, like I said, man, personally, this film isn't enjoyable for me to watch for obvious reasons. Uh, but I give it a light three, five, strong three. 
See, I, I gotta say that this one's a four for me. I, I, I like this movie. It's the conversations in it. The dialogue is good. You know, I, I see the problems that you have with it. And yeah, I, I don't like that either. But at the same time, there, there's so much other stuff with this movie that I love. It's ignorant, Anthony, but it's good ignorant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. I, I hear what you're saying. Um, I, dude, I love how randomly Stephen Wright is a uh, is a radio DJ in this movie. Like oh, you hear yeah. his voice. Yeah. Yeah, I I've got to say that uh, the first time I watched it because I'm huge into comedians and stuff, so I'll always recognize comedians. And it one of the first points that I made when I first watched this was, oh hey that's right what doing something and this is actually original comedy bits it's not his normal 15 jokes that he tells in every special <laughs> yeah i i love how his deadpan voice fits that that uh, voiceover perfectly oh yeah as the radio host it's constantly tuning in and out throughout the entire movie too i love mm-hmm. that yeah, he's one of those comedians that I love, but at the same time, I just wish he had new jokes because he's been telling the same jokes for the last, like, 20 years. One of my favorites of his is, like, hey, what's hey, what's the synonym for thesaurus? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, yeah, he's an acquired taste. He's an acquired taste. Um, but, uh, okay, all right, so head-to-head, I uh, I would put Blood Simple over Reservoir. You got four for for both. For who? So which one you picking? I'd say that it, I, I've now seen Reservoir probably about five times now. Uh, mm-hmm. Blood Simple one time. With that said, Reservoir is higher on the list for me though. Has the edge? Okay, it, it has like the said, edge. Man, you you you're one to two watches away from giving Blood Simple like the masterpiece stamp dude because i tell you the first time i saw it i had your response to it like all right that was cool then i rewatched it again i was like oh man the way they constructed that from the jump is genius yeah i i can i can see it but where i stand right now reservoir dogs over blood sample okay all right fair enough uh, what you seen lately, man? I, I heard you, uh, you went to see a little Marvel film the other day. I did. I, uh, saw the new Shang-Chi movie and was very pleasantly surprised for it because I already had above average expectations for this one because I love Kung Fu movies. Uh, like I love Jackie Chan, Bruce Lee kind of older movies. And so getting to see this movie, uh, like a, actual martial arts movie with like Marvel kind of budget to it. I Mm -hmm. I was super excited as soon as they announced it. And, uh, Shang-Chi, I, or Shang-Chi, I already like read the comics a little bit for it, uh, Mm. because it's known as the masters of Kung Fu is the line of the comics for it. So of course I read it because I love karate movies and stuff like that. So I already knew a little bit about these characters and, uh, I'm, I'm glad that they didn't take like the very racist undertones these comics used to have when they were originally printed. Uh, they took mm. much newer, like uh, vague Marvel comics into mind where a lot of the characters really don't have names because they don't want to say the names of the characters. Like one of the characters in the comic originally was named Fu Manchu. <laughs> so... Yeah, um, 
I, I'm glad that they kind of decided not to go with those, obviously. <laughs> so they so they kind of poked fun at it. Like, um, you don't want to know what my name is. Like, like I don't know. Uh, like, there or... is one scene where somebody makes fun of uh, the original Mandarin name and mm-hmm. going, that's not even my name. The United States wanted to create a terrorist, so they took me and just came up with a chicken dish and made that like the icon of terrorism over there. Okay. Like Mandarin chicken, you know, like. I, <laughs> I got you. I got so you. they, they kind of mock a couple things like that. Um, but yeah, I got to say, this movie lived up to my potential. Like, some of the fight scenes are just beautifully choreographed. Uh, like the bus scene that they show in the trailer and everything. Uh, originally, I was thinking, ah, oh, that's going to be kind of a stupid Marvel moment. I have never been so like attached to the screen watching a Marvel movie for a fight scene uh, since like it, I think Endgame, like the final fight scene between like Thanos and Captain America before everybody else shows up, is the only other time in a Marvel movie that I've been that attached to every detail in a fight scene. All right, man. I um I gotta ask, when did Disney contact you, and how much they paying you to say all this? Uh, there is an undisclosed <laughs> amount, and I am not at liberties to tell according to my NDA. I don't know, man. I'm just skeptical <laughs> of it, man. I'm skeptical because, like, you, you're here telling me, oh, man, Anthony was actually pretty good. I, I don't know. I'm not I'm not sold on, on Shang-Chi. Maybe I just got to see it. See, I, if you're not huge into kung fu movies, I can see where I am. you're not going to enjoy this one. Uh, not you in particular, but for okay. most audiences and stuff, uh, because it is very, it does have a lot of Kung Fu. It's, it's supernatural Kung Fu in parts. Um, it, as soon as I got out of the theater, my first thought was, you know, I really want to see a live action Jackie Chan adventures movie now. Uh, if you mm. remember that show from like the nineties, early two thousands, maybe. I know it came on WB Kids. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's very much a live action version of that. Okay. So that was a fun show. It, it was very fun. the The movie has a lot of fun with its fights. Uh, they are serious at the same time, but they take a lot of fun with like how things are damaged, how people are reacting to them around them. Uh, like if you remember, uh, there's one scene on the bus scene actually, where a guy pulls out his phone and starts streaming the fight and goes, look, I, I did some, uh, martial arts in high school, so I'm going to try and, you know, give a play by play on my thoughts on this fight right here. <laughs> and it, it's got a little bit of that Marvel comedy to it, but it, it fits in right. this one for some reason. Like they don't overbear with the comedy of trying to make everything a joking matter. Uh, I think there's only one scene in the entire movie where I was like, ah, did you really need to make that into a joke moment? You you could have kept it serious. Uh, the rest of the movie does a good job of like balancing it. There's perfect moments where Marvel comedy hits so well, like where the quirky Marvel, the quirky self-aware Marvel comedy hits so well. The perfect scene is Doctor Strange, where Doctor Strange and um, Shitwoli G Force character. I forgot his name. Uh, you know his name. You're a fan of comics, right? Yeah. You don't know his name? Uh, are you talking about the guy with the eyes? The weird eyes? 
No, 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 no. So, so basically, I, I just sum it up. So, Doctor Strange gets invited to the whole place where Tilda Swinton's character is, and uh, at one point, the guy gives him a number. He says, "What's that number for?" The Wi-Fi. Oh like, yeah, that's a that's a perfect oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a perfect moment where Marvel com more Marvel's quirky comedy hits well. You know what I'm saying? Because like you you can you can surprise the audience by bringing them into this like this serious transitional moment where the, where our protagonist is fulfilling his destiny and then you you hit him with a joke out of nowhere and it lands. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Because you that, got that's their the attention. Wi-Fi password. <laughs> right. That's yes. Yeah. Yeah, password to the Wi-Fi. You know it. That's amazing. You know like so if if it has a good balance of that um, and the comedy isn't overbearing, uh, I'm in. Yeah, like even taking Doctor Strange for example, one of the uh, conversations that he has when he first meets the main villain of the movie is, you know, Mister Doctor, Mister Doctor. No, it's strange. Well, I won't judge. And it's just it's a very fast paced kind of joke, but it, it it works for the tone of the movie and in that scene and everything. Um, I can say there's only one moment that just doesn't land in this movie to me. The rest of it was like perfectly timed kind of humor. How was Aquafina? Um, I, I'm trying to remember. Was she the? So you you know if you saw her, um, she did the film The Farewell. Uh, that got a lot of buzz. A lot of Oscar buzz when it when it dropped. Um, you know if you saw her, man. She was in Ocean's Eight with Sandra Bullock. Yeah, give me I a moment. She was in that movie. Um, and she was like, oh yeah, she played uh, Katie. But... Yeah, she was actually yeah. pretty good in this. Uh, she okay. definitely acted yeah. as more of like the comedy of the movie, uh, but again, it's yeah. not like overbearing. So she actually has some good emotional scenes and moments in the movie, and uh, it her character is a little bit annoying at the very beginning of the movie, but after that, it falls into place pretty well. Okay, okay, yeah, I always uh, tend to like her. She um, brings a lot of comedy and energy to her movies. Yeah. All right, cool, cool. Um, you know, I haven't really watched anything lately, but um. I wanted to watch that 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 new film Karen, but I thought better of it because it looked like it it looked like a college made movie. You heard the film Karen? I do it's, not. It's, okay, what well, is 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 what you would think it is? It's about a woman, a white woman that has um, these black neighbors move in next door. Pretty nice couple, and you know she acts like a Karen. You know she kind of like gaslights them and stuff like that. And can we stop with the Jordan Peele knockoffs? Let let the originator do his thing. Like, oh, is this trying yeah. to be like a Get Out kind of movie? It's yeah. I mean, there there isn't like some secret conspiracy going on, but she is trying to like kind of ruin their lives and stuff like that. And um, you know, she's being a Karen. And I'm like, do we really have to turn this into a whole full length movie? Thirty minutes short, I get it, but a whole movie? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't think I'm gonna check it out, but. Oh, did I tell you I saw the Jason Momoa film? We talked about that, right? I want to say we talked about that last time. We talked about it last time. All right. I'll just, yeah, we talked about it last time. Um, recently, man, I've just been listening to a lot of film soundtracks, dude. Um, you know, up until this moment, the only film soundtracks I really ever loved 
was like Daft Punk's Tron Legacy, amazing. Um, Nine Inch Nails Social Network score, also amazing. But um, I kind of I kind of branched out. I listened to Inception and Interstellar by Hans Zimmer. Uh, Inception and Interstellar are very good, dude. Like those are very good scores. Mm-hmm. Um, I listened to the expanded edition of Interstellar, so it went kind of, it went for a long time. You know, there's only so much of film scores I can take. But um, I've been getting into John Carpenter, dude. John Carpenter is very dope at his uh, music. I mean, his movies are good, too. But, like, the way he made his own music for his films, like, that was pretty impressive. See, I don't think I can ever sit down and listen to an entire, well, outside of, like, a very, very few movies, listen to the entire soundtrack just in one go. I like unorthodox soundtracks. You know what I mean? Like when Nine Inch Nails went into film scoring, I was like, that's Nine Inch Nails. I'm a mm-hmm. fan of them. And yeah. I like those because they're Nine Inch Nails like. When Daft Punk did Tron Legacy, it's a Daft Punk album. It's just a Daft Punk soundtrack. You know what I mean? Like, I like unorthodox soundtracks or film scores. You know, yeah, it's I a think film those score. are the ones I mostly can listen to, like in one go. I got you. I got you. Yeah, I mean, you know, excuse me. I kind of sunk in a little bit, but um, I don't regret it because I heard some pretty good stuff and uh, has me a little inspired to listen to some more film scores. You know, because I do think it is kind of like you do have to set your time out to listen to it and not feel like you're in a movie. Just take the work for what it is. And it's hard to do that because when I was listening to the Inception one, I'm like, OK, that's from that scene that that was used in that scene. And I wasn't really listening to the music. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I but, you can know. get what you're saying. Like, I have that same feeling anytime I hear, like, any song from the Scott Pilgrim soundtrack. I'm instantly going, oh, yeah, I know when this happens in the movie. This is during that scene. <laughs> but have you ever listened to the Scott Pilgrim film score? Uh, yes. It's one of the very few film scores I can listen to. Mostly because I, I can picture every scene in that movie perfectly to the film score. Okay. Yeah, I feel like I, I got the Kill Bill 1 and 2 soundtrack, but the sound, the songs I mostly pulled from there were like the actual songs that were used in the movies. Mm-hmm. So like, Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood by Santa Esmeralda, but I never really listened to the actual score by, I think Ennio Morricone did the second one and RZA did, RZA did the first film. I'm not sure. I forgot. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. Other than that, man, I haven't really been watching anything. I think I want to rewatch Dark on Netflix. Um, you seen anything else outside of that? Uh, outside of Shang Chi, anything on TV? Um, not re- well. I've gotten back into watching Taskmaster, which is a UK kind of uh, game show where they have comedians compete to finish tasks that are like completely absurd, uh, like. It- Okay. I, I mean, completely like fill or put as much spaghetti in this orange as you possibly can. You have two minutes, you know, like that kind of absurdity. And then they figure out which comedian did best with putting the spaghetti inside of an orange. You got a lot of time on your hands, don't you? Um, well, I, I love UK comedy, so it, it's pure comedy to watch them like read the task of, you know. Uh, put as much spaghetti as you can inside this. Wait, hold on. Where's the orange? 
oh, there it is. It's like right in front of them. Oh, that orange. That's what that's for. Okay, hold on. Put as much spaghetti as you... How am I supposed to get spaghetti in an orange? And, you know, obviously the person that put the task together is just like, all the information you need is on the card. Uh, your time starts now. <laughs> <laughs> And just watching them you scramble, know, like, one of them will, like, go, crap, and then they'll, like, run out, grab a screwdriver, start poking holes in the orange to try and get the spaghetti in. Uh, others will just take a clump of spaghetti and just start stabbing the orange and hoping <laughs> to get as much as they can in. Like, it's it's hilarious watching just comedians that are naturally funny in their element uh, mm-hmm. kind of be put into a position where they have no uh, control over what's going on. And it, it just it remains funny. I love it. Okay, all right. Um, I noticed this one show on Fox that has Will Arnett as a co-host, where people are trying to create things with Legos. Oh, Lego Masters. Yeah. Do you watch that? Um, I've watched like two episodes of it. I think it just go. It just seems to drag a lot. Um, I found myself watching the like end five minutes of a couple episodes though just to kind of see what they created and stuff, because some of those things that they create with the Legos are insane. It's really cool. They, they look pretty good, yeah. But uh, um, watching an hour of people, you know, put Legos together is not exciting to me. Uh, but seeing what they've created at the end is pretty cool. Yeah, man. You know, I, I watch that show, like, in the gym. I see it on TV. I'm like, oh, okay, that looks pretty good. Oh, this is the whole show. They just they just make things out of Legos and no, oh, this this is the uh this is the whole show. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like, it's just something on that I watch when I'm working out. I don't think I can watch it from front to back, back to front at, at home. But yeah, it's, um, it's I gave it a good try and then I was like, I, I really do like the last like five to maybe like eight minutes of the show where they show <laughs> the final result. That's really cool. Uh, I guess that's just the parts that I'm going to watch from now on. And luckily those parts are on YouTube. So right. I don't um, even have to click fast forward or anything. Yeah. So meanwhile, in uh movie news, so Dune and last night in Soho premiered at the Venice film festival. I hear that, you know, people like Dune, um, people like last night in Soho. It got like a 10 minute, standing ovation which every film that premieres there gets don't try and take this away from me nah man every film that premieres don't try and take this away from me it got a 10 minute standing ovation that means it's the best movie of all time don't you dare try and take this away from me well really it was seven i was being gracious (laughs) but um you know i mean no but listen like every time a movie premieres there they're like this movie got a standing ovation every movie gets a standing ovation there it's the venice film festival yeah but um yeah man you know I'm hearing that um I don't really go by reviews anymore these days but I hear that you know reviews are pretty good for last night uh, See I heard that so one of the reviews that has been circulating as like a joke for Dune uh one of the negatives that they put is that it's too faithful to the book instead of bringing new diversity to the movie <laughs> <sighs> Which basically equates to this movie is just too perfectly like the book and they didn't change it at all. So negative. It doesn't dumb it down. It doesn't Hollywood it down. Yeah. They didn't change out these characters for people of more culture, which wouldn't have fit in the book story in the first place. (laughs) 
Yeah, I know that's so stupid. Um, you know, the Harry Potter films follow the source material too closely yeah. instead of making original There was stories. no Asian representation in Harry Potter, and this is a travesty. Well, it's it's a school in, you know, in the UK. Right. <laughs> how, how there many... are Asian people in the UK. Let's, let's, there are Asian people in the UK. Right. But yeah, I get it. it right. It's a very low amount versus... <laughs> right, right. I got you. Um, yeah, man, I hate those kind of like... Uh, Zendaya's in it. What do they mean representation? She's black. Like, what, what was the what was the criticism? It was the criticism was that it, they didn't add enough diversity to the movie from its original source material. It's not that kind of ball game. Yeah. I, it's, it's just not that kind of ball game. It's I that kind of stuff. I it's stupid to me. <laughs> I understand where that criticism fits with mainstream hollywood but with that kind of movie it's like and eh, paul was a white kid like you know mm-hmm. the main character paul was a white kid like his father was like, it, all of that fits uh but whatever whatever man i like, just say whatever i can see it fitting for something like ghost in the shell where you're like well what happened to diversity yeah, yeah. in that movie okay perfectly fine dune you're you're in the wrong ballpark, dude. You you're carrying a football across like the basketball court and going, This just doesn't work. Why isn't this working? I think cancel culture is is reaching its apex. Well, it already reached its apex. It's really just becoming straight up obnoxious now. Like are we really gonna cancel Dune? Are we gonna cancel Dune? Come on, man. I, I don't think anybody's taking it seriously because the only places I've seen it is people mocking it. Okay. All right. Yeah, I um, I, I've heard I've heard a mixed bag of things. I've heard people saying, "Hey, it, it is good that Dennis V. I don't know how to say his last name. Um, Dennis V. wanted a huge sc- scope for his film because this film is made for theaters." But uh, some people say, "Eh, it kind of like throws a lot at the screen and doesn't really know how to control it." Like I've heard some fair criticism of it, but um, I'm still geeked for it. I still think it's going to be amazing. I'm just very wary if it's going to get a sequel so that he can finish out the second half of the book. Because science fiction films, it's really touch and go whether they really make their money back. Yeah. I, given the early kind of uh, screen, well, audience kind of results for it, because they also mm-hmm. did do like the audience score kind of screenings already, and it got really good general audience scores. Okay. So, so I can see it as long as it actually like hits its mark on marketing, it it could do well. I feel like this could be another like success story like uh what was the the Martian. You know, where Yeah, but the the Martian had a lot going for it. You got Matt Damon by himself, you got Ridley Scott. I mean, you got Drew Goddard writing the script. Like that was made to be a popcorn mainstream flick. You know what I'm saying? Right, but if you remember, not many people knew about the movie until after it released, and everybody was talking about it, and then it started getting that surge of people going to see it. Because you had a lot of the sci-fi nerds going that first weekend, and then after that, you started Mm -hmm. having more general audiences going to see it. Okay, So I I could see Dune hitting that same stride where, you know... the the sci-fi fans are going to see this and start praising the movie. And then general audiences are going to go, everybody keeps talking about this Dune movie. Maybe we should go see that. Yeah. Okay. I hope that happens. Um, 
Yeah, that might happen. I want it to turn out to be a Lord of the Rings kind of success story. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I want Dennis V to do the whole. Well, hey, hey if, he, if he has the money and the backing, he should do the whole series if he wants to. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I do want it to be very successful. I want it to get more success than Blade Runner 2049, which it. I don't think that did that film break even at least. I want to say it did, but I do not remember for sure. Because I know that one did pull some good numbers in terms of sci-fi, though. Okay, I'm about to pull it up right now. Uh, Box office, 260.5 million. So it it got, yeah, it made made some money back. Okay. I want want this film to be more successful than that, though. I, I want it to be a... Successful enough that it gets us, that it has the plug for a sequel, but you know we'll never know. Yeah, I mean with Blade Runner, that one a, a lot of people looked at that and just went, "I don't understand what Blade Runner even was." So I know that that one kind of got that hit at the theater as well. It's a, it's a niche audience, and I, I think Dune is a niche audience too. Well, if you like sci-fi and fantasy, I think you'll be in for Dune. Yeah. I think Blade Runner was a very wordy and long movie. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Um, Wheel of Time is coming to Amazon Prime. That's based off uh, another group of uh, fantasy novels. You ever read those? I have not. I'm trying to remember which one that is. Robert Jordan wrote it. Brandon Sanderson, who um, who kind of writes his own sci-fi fantasy novels he uh he co-wrote the last three of them yeah so basically many people compare them to like you know lord of rings you know saying like it's one of the top fantasy series of books next to lord of rings game of thrones uh what's another one the terry goodkind series Uh, you know one that um, you keep getting trying to get me to read sagas no saga is a comic oh yeah yeah, but um, I don't know. That could be good. Rosamund Pike is in the lead. I was thinking about reading those books before that drops, but looks like a lot of the movies is pretty stale this month, man. There's nothing this month I really want to see. I, I think we were talking about that at the end of like the last episode where we were kind of going, what what's coming out this month? And it's like nothing. <laughs> there, outside there's... of yeah, outside of Paul Schrader's The Carb Counter. With Oscar Isaac and Tiffany Haddish, it ain't much I want to see this month. Yeah, th- th- this is going to be a very slow month for movies up until October, and even then, it's not even really up until like mid October that stuff starts coming out. Yeah, yeah. All right, folks. Well, I think that uh, about calls it. You know, it's been another great episode of Double Feature Versus. Uh, take care, and we'll see you on the next one.